Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, Charlie O'Connor here with a uh, another edition of Other Stuff, the music and movie show where I invite one of Bill or Kelly to discuss an album and a movie. Sorry we missed last week. I was a little bit swamped with just work and life and everything. So we decided to take a week off, but we're back and... This is what, Kelly, this is the second time you've been on the show? Yep, this is number two for me. Awesome, awesome. So last time we did um, we did Guy Ritchie Snatch, you picked the movie, and then we did uh, Fountains of Wayne, Welcome to Interstate Managers, uh, Welcome Interstate Managers, uh, the, uh, the album. So this week we're switching it up. This week I'm doing the movie, and, uh, and you are doing the album. And I sent you, just for some background for the listeners, I sent Kelly a list of like 20 movies, and Kelly was like, yeah, I've seen all of these except for three. <laughs> so that's like, I, I, I'm realizing, and I don't, think, I don't think I knew this, I didn't realize that Kelly was such a movie person. Like I knew you liked movies, I didn't realize yeah. you were like this much of a movie person. Yeah, I do movie. I guess I don't talk about it very much, but like I really like going to the movies. And I like... I like watching movies if I'm in the mood to, like... Because I feel like with a TV show, you can kind of put it on and zone out a little bit. But with a movie, you have to pay attention. So if I'm watching... If I'm in a mood to, like, sit still for a couple of hours and actually use my brain a little bit, I like to watch a movie. No, that's cool. And, and maybe it's partially because, like, Steph is so anti-movie that yeah. you never really bring up movies in our shows because no, yeah. you, you know that Steph is going to be able to follow the conversation almost <laughs> yeah. certainly. Um, but uh, that, that might be the reason why I just figure that like, you, know, you like movies, but it's not a big thing. But when, when I said that big list and you basically picked out only three that you hadn't seen, I was like, okay, this is actually a perfect show for Kelly because <laughs> she's a big time movie person. I, I, as I said, I, maybe I knew it on some level, but I guess I didn't realize to that degree. Yeah, yeah, I love to consume media, Charlie. In all I mean, forms. <laughs> it's something to do, and mm-hmm. especially now, considering we're not doing a lot. But in all honesty, you know, we as people often don't do a lot. That's just you know being a person, even when the world isn't falling apart. It is true. I think that's one of the things that is like kind of becoming super clear that like even when you're doing your job. There's not really a lot of thing that you're doing. Whole lot of empty space in a day. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when um, in 2015-16 when I was, um, I was working part-time at my marketing job and I was covering the flyers for the first time, like semi-full-time for BSH. And I was doing my tracking project. I was tracking every game, uh, every flyers game, exits and, and entries. And it's honestly pretty brainless work. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's interesting and you definitely pick things up, but at the same time, you don't have to be, you don't have to be like a hundred percent focused on it necessarily to pick everything up at all times. Cause you're just sort of waiting for things to happen. So I would have like a television show that I'd already seen on my other screen as I did the tracking, just so I could have something that like occasionally could catch my attention and break away the monotony of just tracking random events for flyers games. So I totally get it. Yeah, I used to do that actually um, at my old slash current job in my office. I had a two-screen situation, and whenever I was doing something that was super monotonous like that, like I would have a spreadsheet on one screen, the other screen, some kind of 
television show or movie or something. Because, like, you, it is kind of nice just to have, like, something running when yeah. you're doing this, like, super boring work. And it, it kind of helps pass the time and make you not go insane. Exactly. Exactly. So, on that note... Let's go through the uh, the movies and albums. So I guess we always start with the movie. So the movie this week um, was The Untouchables, which is um, like it's basically a retelling of um, the, the the Treasury Department group led by Elliot Ness that eventually took down uh, Al Capone. And obviously they they take a lot of liberties. Like I highly doubt the actual taking down of Al Capone was this eventful and exciting and mur- <laughs> and, and and murder filled. But yeah, <laughs> it's you know it's the movies and you got to do what you got to do to make it interesting. Um, we'll get into the album uh, later. Um, but as a teaser, it is a v- extremely Kelly Hinkle album, and I'm very pumped to listen to it. Uh, or I did listen to it. I'm very pumped to talk about it um but anyway so uh so this was a movie for me um i watched this movie a lot as like a kid because i think my my dad really liked it so it was Mm. one of those movies it's not on tv as much anymore it was released in 1987 but i guess like during the 90s some one of the cable channels got a hold of it and just aired it a lot and Mm. it was one of those movies i think for my dad that you know, we talked about on past shows. There's movies where if you're flipping around the TV and it's on, that that there's your next two hours. Well, this was one. I think one of those movies for my dad. So he would put it on, and then I'd watch it, and like he'd just have me leave the room when there was going to be like a super violent scene. Sometimes, sometimes he'd be like, "I don't care." Go ahead. <laughs> but when I was like six or seven years old, I don't think he was having me watch certain scenes in this movie. But I watched this movie a ton, like probably like upwards of like eight or nine times as you know as a kid and then i hadn't seen it in years this was the first time i'd seen it in a while but for you this was the first time you'd seen it and i was glad that we could find one movie on that list that that you hadn't seen (laughs) yeah i and obviously i've heard of this movie um and i am generally a big fan of like the mobster kind of genre of film um, so I was excited to watch this, but it actually turned out not to be what I was expecting, which I, I kind of liked. Really? So I guess explain what, what were you expecting and then what did you get? So I, I guess I was expecting more of like a, a Goodfellas Godfather, like that style of movie. Gotcha. Um, and this was like very different from that. And I'm actually excited to talk about this too, because there were some things where I was like, I think you have it here in the outline. There's where I wasn't sure if if stylistically some things were like a deliberate choice by the director or if this was just 1987 filmmaking, which I thought was interesting. There was a lot of that that I was like, hmm, okay. It it is interesting, and one thing that that's worth pointing out that I didn't even know because like I'm not I'm, I'm a, I like movies I'm not a movie expert by any means. So it was directed by Brian De Palma, who four years earlier did Scarface, and like obviously that's an extremely distinctive, and that's yeah. you know I, I I don't know if I call that like Goodfellas ish because Scorsese has his own style that's very unique to him, but like that's definitely like a glorification type thing, or at mm-hmm. least it's been interpreted to be a glorification of that life by all the people who buy the Scarface poster and put it up in their college dorms, um, which was a thing and probably is still a thing. I don't know. Probably, um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I didn't know that, that he, like, I guess I knew on some level that he did this movie and maybe on another level I knew he did Scarface, but I guess I didn't make the connection that like, okay, that's, you know, he's 
Scarface was a very style, like stylized movie. And yeah. I guess it makes sense on some level that this movie is also fairly stylized. Um, but yeah, I think it's it's worth getting into this. Like it, this movie, you know, just based on the actors they have in here. Like this movie was clearly intended to be a prestige picture. Like it won Academy Awards, um, but it definitely, as you said, it definitely has an '80s vibe. Like mm-hmm. it's just very. It's very flashy. It's not particularly subtle, which is interesting considering the fact that, like, especially these days, most prestige pictures, I think, are subtle. And this oh, one yeah. is not subtle at all. No, it's definitely not. And it was actually, I didn't, I, I knew that Kevin Costner was Elliot Ness um, going into it, but I didn't realize that Sean Connery was in this movie. Um, I don't think, like, Thinking about it now, I think that somewhere in my mind, I knew that De Niro was Al Capone. But when he came on screen, I was like, oh, yeah, De Niro's in this. Um, but yeah, it was like a super, super star-packed film, um, which, like you said, kind of drives home the point that this was not meant to be kind of a hammy movie. Like, this was meant to be serious stuff, because I don't really think that you pull together all these names with the idea that you're going to make not a, I don't want to say a parody, but like some kind of like weird take on like for me, it was almost like I couldn't tell if this was supposed to be like a take on a noir kind of film, um, like if they were going for that kind of style specifically, because I think there were a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that was kind of seemed heavy handed in that direction, yeah, um, or if that was just like truly what De Palma wanted this movie to be like without referencing anything from the past um which was like I said it was, it was kind of interesting this movie gives you a lot to talk about I think yeah yeah definitely and you know one thing that I when I was watching it that surprised me because I didn't see these movies I didn't see these movies growing up I didn't see these, these particular movies until I got older but particularly the beginning like the first maybe like half an hour when they're introducing Capone and like you're trying to pres- kind of presenting him as this larger than life figure, it reminded me a lot of the the Tim Burton Batman movies, which were also you know '80s movies, very '80s movies, and that's a weird thing to think. Yeah. But like there definitely was that like just obvious sense of bombast that like maybe that's what they were going for because Al Capone is, you know, at least in pop culture viewed as a larger than life figure. But like it was kind of weird to see that in what clearly was made to try to a movie that was clearly made to try to win awards. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the beginning was like extremely heavy handed in like the idea like everyone knows Al Capone was bad. Everybody in 1987 knew that Al Capone was bad. But they make it, like, they go real hard to make you understand that Al Capone and his guys are very, very bad. And then, on the other side, go very, very hard to make Elliot Ness and his family, like, into this, like, angelic, perfect figure of goodness on the other side. Um, That, again, like, I was like... And I'm glad that you made the, the Tim Burton reference because... Those movies, like, I can't even watch them now because there's just so cheesy at this point where it's <laughs> like, oh, my God, like, what are you doing? Like, the Mr. Freeze stuff and, like, all that kind of silly, like, the stuff between Batman and Robin. Like, it's all so cheesy to watch it now. Well, I, 
Well, I, I think in fairness, and like I'm far from like a Batman person, like those movies, like the the Mister Freeze movie, like those were very '90s. I feel that like early '90s, wasn't it? Yeah, like the the Burton movies. You had like the very first one with yeah. Michael Keaton, and then you had the one with the pe- with the penguin, right? Oh, right, the, the penguin. The, the, those are the Burton ones, and and like yeah, you're right. They, those are the ones that kind of because the '90s ones I didn't like at all, Mm-mm. and they are just like bad. Whereas the Burton <laughs> ones, they're different, like very different from the new Batman movies, but they're very stylistic. They're stylized. Like mm-hmm. Burton was, you know, he kind of had that like you know, that that Beetlejuice type flair, that whole thing. Oh yeah, and it's just in yeah. a just in a Batman movie, and like this was like. This was weird because it, at times it felt like that, but without the like the gothic element to it that you had in mm-hmm. the Batman movies, it was just the flashiness, which was interesting. And again, like it's not something I picked up when I was a kid because I was just watching it as like a gangster movie. Yeah, and it was like the the violence is like really like just so done. I guess like it's almost like you know in like Kill Bill or something where like the violence is almost like cartoonified in its ridiculousness like all yeah. of the blood and the explosions and like all of that kind of stuff it was almost like this like people dying in like a really dramatic way because they got shot or like blood like sean connery gets sh- shot spoiler alert and there's just like blood everywhere so much yeah. blood. which like i guess if you get shot by a machine gun there probably would be but it just all felt like so much yeah that i was like yeah it- that, and that's that's the thing that i couldn't i couldn't really decide if that was like I'm doing this because I want it to be too much or I'm like truly trying to make a serious prestige film. And this was just the choice that I made because it was 1987. Yeah. I guess in fairness, like, you know, we talked about De Palma with Scarface, like Scarface is a very gory movie too, especially, you know, when you get to, when you get to the end. So that might just have been his thing. And I don't think Scarface was a movie that was maybe he intended it to win win awards, but it ended, like it ended up obviously being like a big cult movie. Right. Um, whereas this, you know, if you're getting if you're getting Robert De Niro and you're getting um, particularly De Niro, because I, I, I imagine like this was probably presented as like De Niro plays Capone, like that mm-hmm. was the way it was sold to people. Because like we now think of Kevin Costner as this big star, and then Andy Garcia is one of the Untouchables, but like neither of them were big going into this movie. So Costner, this was, this was like Costner's big breakout. Like this was before field of dreams, before bull Durham, before dances with wolves. This was the movie that kind of put him on the map as a leading man. And then Andy Garcia was in nothing. Like this was even before Andy Garcia was in Godfather part three. And then Andy Garcia becomes this really good actor in like the, you know, the late eighties, early nineties into the, into the early two thousands. And they just kind of dug him up out of nowhere. Um, but you have, you had De Niro in it and this was, you know, De Niro was a star, you know, De Niro was Scorsese's boy. He was a star at this point. And it's like, okay, well, we're going to see Robert De Niro play Al Capone. And I think that that particular casting and that particular performance is really the most interesting part of a rewatch because I can never really decide if he's really good or really bad as Capone because it's just, it's so hammy. Like, he hams it up to such a ridiculous degree. Right, yeah, and that, it kind of follows with the rest of the film. Like, Robert, like, you don't have to wonder if Robert De Niro is a good actor. You know Robert De Niro is a good actor. You know that he's capable of, like, nuance and subtlety. Like, we've seen it in other movies. Yeah. But he was an absolute cartoon character in this film in, like, every single way. And that just, I, that is one of the things where I'm just, like, made me wonder 
what kind of movie they were actually trying to make with this. Um, because, yeah, again, everything is just so heavy-handed. And he was, like, very, like, bombastic and almost overacting in a way that you don't really see from De Niro. Um, so, yeah, it, it was interesting. Yeah, like, the baseball bat scene is probably the one that, like, is the most iconic Mm. because it's just so utterly ridiculous. And apparently, like, a core, because I, I watched it on Amazon Prime. I rented it. And um, and it, they have, like, little things that pop up if you, like, hover over the screen during certain scenes. And apparently, like, Capone supposedly did that. Like, he oh. did actually beat somebody to death with a baseball bat. So that wasn't just, like, an out-of-nowhere type thing. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it was, maybe this was a situation where De Palma looked at it and, and he just thought the only way that he could accurately portray Capone was to go this crazy and that was the yeah. only way that that you know he felt like it would work like one thing that that I do laugh about and he does the De Palma does this a couple times in the movie and I both times he did it I laugh because I actually remembered this this cut from um from being from a kid and watching it is like there's two scenes where I think it's the baseball bat scene and then it's the scene where he just screams that he wants Elliot Ness's family dead. He wants their house burned to the ground. That whole that whole scene where he goes in that rant. And after both of those scenes, there's a smash cut to like Elliot Ness like tucking his kid in. And it's yeah. very much like you're very clearly supposed to be like, oh, here's this like evil, evil man, and then here's like the the everything that embodies goodness in in Kevin Costner and, and Elliot Ness's character. Yeah, they they did that a lot. Like I said, the very like the opening scene or two, is very obviously meant to tell the viewer, these are the bad guys, this is the good guys. Like, I feel like with a, a lot of mobster movies, if you want to call them that, there is kind of like a, a little bit of you start, like you like the bad guys on some level. That's fair. Like, That's really Like fair. you watch Goodfellas, you like Henry Hill. Like you don't, you know that he's bad, but you know, he does some funny things, makes you laugh from time to time. But with this movie, there was there was none of trying to make the bad guys seem like they had any kind of good side at all. It was a very, like, black and white, this guy's good, this guy's bad. Um, which does kind of get muddled a little bit towards the end with Ness in, in particular. I think that, like, he starts to kind of drift into the dark side a little bit because he's gotten so wrapped up in this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely very, very good guy, bad guy, nothing in the middle. Um, which is different from, like, like I said, different from the movie that I thought I was going to be watching. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's interesting. And I almost, it's funny you say that because I almost wonder if, like, I would imagine that most, and I'm, as I said, I'm far from like a movie expert, but I would imagine like, probably like pre-Scorsese, it was, I mean, do you think, I, I, I take the, I have the impression that, like, Hollywood used to be more black and white in terms of, like, heroes and villains. Oh, for and, sure. Like, and, like, maybe, like, we're so used to movies like Scorsese's, like, his take on, on the mob genre that, like, kind of because of that, this seems more dated than maybe it would have back then. Because, like, if you think about it, like, those Scorsese movies came out in the 90s. 
Like, they, they, they feel like they came out a long time ago, but, like, Casino, Goodfellas, like, they came out relatively recently and after this movie came out. So it's interesting that, like, we're talking about, because I totally agree, those movies, and part of the reason why I think they're so great is because they position it where, like, Scorsese as a director has this ability to, and I think sometimes he gets some criticism for, which I think is unfair, that, you know, that you're making these awful people too sympathetic. Whereas in reality, like, if you're really paying attention, they're not sympathetic. Mm -hmm. But if you're just looking at it on the surface level, I can understand why you would watch that movie and decide I want to be, you know, I want to be a gangster, even though that's clearly not what he's going for. And I think he gets some criticism for that. But maybe that shift like so many mobster movies kind of they feel like they have to feel like that now because Scorsese did it so well that now it's like there's no way for you to do that genre movie without having that gray area I don't know it's just a theory no that's a, a really good point because and I think that's probably why I wondered in the back of my mind if they were trying to reference like movies from the 30s and 40s because they were very much like that like very heavy-handed in the good and bad, very kind of hammy in the violence. Um, I don't know if that was – I don't know why. All the, but like you said, like I guess maybe it's just because at that time, that's stylistically how people were deciding to do violence in movies, so everybody did them that way. Um, but yeah, I, I used to watch a lot of like old-timey classic films with my mom when I was a kid, so I've seen a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s, and they are – they felt this movie felt very much like that more than it feels like a movie from now which is interesting because obviously 1987 is closer to now than it was like 1937 but for some reason this movie to me felt more from that era than it would from today i think that's totally fair um and one thing i will say and i think this is for me this is when I get I got sucked back in because I was surprised the first like 20, 25 minutes of like kind of how like, man, I don't I don't like this movie as much as I did when I was when I was younger. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's it starts to hit its stride when Sean Connery's character comes in. Yeah. And I think that's when it really starts to come together. And, you know, I didn't really I didn't realize maybe why it comes to get it starts to come together for me until we were talking this through. But I feel like I may have kind of stumbled upon it. It's that. Like, his character comes in, and the thing that he makes very clear from a thematic standpoint is, like, you're not going to take these guys down by being the law-abiding angel that, like, you clearly— that He says this to Elliot Ness in the, in the church, that, like, how far are you willing to go? And mm-hmm. Elliot Ness is like, I'm willing to, you know, do everything within the law. And, like, Sean Connery just kind of, like, laughs. His character just laughs at him. He's like— all right, well, screw it. I'll work with you anyway. But, like, you could tell he's just kind of like, you're a fucking idiot. And then from that moment on, like, not only does the movie just get more interesting because more stuff is happening, but it's also, like, you definitely have that element of, as you noted, Kevin Costner's character as Elliot Ness starts doing more things Mm -hmm. that are a little bit in the gray area. And I think they make it very clear that that's partially influenced by just being drawn into it, but it's also heavily influenced by Sean Connery's character who becomes like a mentor to Elliot Ness. And I think that's where maybe you start getting the subtlety, which is interesting because I never, that didn't really click for me why that's when I started liking the movie, but maybe it's because that's when it stops being quite as cartoony because you've added in that element of the good guys aren't perfect anymore. 
you know, I didn't, in my head, I didn't link those two things together, but obviously, now that you've said it out loud, it makes perfect sense. And also, Connery was so good in this. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he's I mean, like, he's good I... in everything, but like, he was really good in this. No, he's really good in this. Like, he um, he wins the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. And, mm-hmm. like, I put in the outline Best Character, and I, I think it's a slam dunk. I think he's oh, by, sure. far, by far the best character in this movie. Yes, definitely. Without question. Like, he's the, the most interesting character just from, like, a background standpoint. Like, his journey to being, like, he's a beat cop that, you know, has been on the force forever and never really moved up from that. Um, and then suddenly he's involved in this, like, huge scheme to get al capone um makes it really interesting and then also he's just like you said the guy that kind of takes them into an area that's a bit grayer than they were before because all of the guys were pretty much goody two-shoes type of guys even andy garcia who is like obviously supposed to be like the most like roughy toughy part of the crew um it's also kind of funny, like, this being Andy Garcia's first movie, and this supposed to be being a time when people were super racist against Italians. Like, Andy Garcia is just, like, cursed to be an Italian guy for the rest of his career in, like, every single movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. And, I mean, I actually, I'm a big fan of... Um of Andy Garcia. I think he's, yeah, he's a really great. good actor. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, it's not, it's not a movie that like was ever going to win any awards, but I thought he was fantastic in the first oceans movie. Oh my God. He's so good. Like, and I, like, I legit love that movie. Yeah. I think, I think that's like, that's a movie where like, I know why it didn't win anything because it's, it's a poppy movie, mm-hmm. but like, that's an extremely well-made movie in so many ways. And I don't think that movie would work nearly as well as it does if Andy Garcia isn't as good of a villain as he is. I agree. Yeah. Everything about that movie is perfect. All of the, the casting, all of the acting, the way it's directed. I love that movie so much. And I think, I think it's kind of like considered like you said, kind of a joke movie, especially now that it's one of those movies that's always on basic cable. Um, yeah. <laughs> and especially since, like, I thought 12 was pretty good, not as good as 11. And then 13 was, like, kind of not great at all. So I think that, like, that kind of tarnished it a little bit. But, like, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Ocean's 11 in a while, I would request that you do so because you will like it a lot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was definitely, like, the best... Um advertisement for las vegas that yeah, right. they ever they like, ever got like I, I i mean the first time i went to las vegas i needed to go to the uh, the fountain because yeah. of that and that, that ending scene which is like one of my favorite so that's probably like a top 20 favorite scene like they're they're all watching the 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 fountains go off and slowly walking away after they do the job but uh but kind of going back to uh to this movie as much mm-hmm. as i mean the the oceans 11 is a great movie so if you haven't <laughs> seen it definitely watch it but i feel like most people have probably seen it it's a pretty probably it's pretty ubiqu- ubiquitous movie um so anyway so with this movie um you would you say uh like favorite scenes what what scenes kind of come up as the most memorable i really like first watch yeah i really liked the uh the kind of shootout scene on the bridge when they were trying that to intercept good. the delivery, mostly because I was like super duper on the edge of my seat because I really thought that the uh, nerdy accountant guy whose name I forget, I was like convinced that he was going to die in that scene because it was like what he was doing was crazy, but he didn't. Um, and kind of like the whole way that scene began and like what it led to, 
Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun to watch. But the ones that you picked are good, too. Yeah, no, that that's a great scene. That whole sequence, I think. Like, I think that's when... That's when the movie really, really gets going. Mm-hmm. Like that, like the the build up to the bridge to, to to give it to give background for people who haven't seen the movie. Basically, they get a tip that Capone's men are going to be bringing, um, I think, Canadian whiskey or booze or whatever over the Canadian border. So they fly up to the Canadian border and they're shacked up in this like little like this little house. Basically, it's like a little hut essentially, and they're waiting for the the. The, the trucks come over the bridge, the Canadian Mounties on the other side of the border. And basically that that sequence from them waiting and, you know, them slowly building the tension of, like, when's it going to come? We're all nervous. You know, this is Elliot Ness's first real big thing. Same thing with the nerdy accountant guy. And, like, Andy Garcia's character is kind of his first time and, like, going to be in a shootout as well. And then everything through the end of that the end of that sequence because it's a long sequence you mm-hmm. know just in terms of before they go back to chicago it, that's all fantastic like mm-hmm. the the part of that sequence that i love the most is um is when so they 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 get the shipment and they basically they elliot ness ends up ends up killing his first guy because the guy runs away and he has to chase him down and he tries to tell him to drop his gun but the guy doesn't speak english so he ends up and he holds the gun so he ends up having to shoot him so there's this dead bodies laying like outside the hut like on the front porch or whatever and they get um they get what is essentially Capone's like bookmaker. Like he's got the mm-hmm. ledger of all the things and the accountant's like, we could get this guy for income tax evasion. So they have to convince the bookkeeper to like translate the ledger because it's all in code and whatnot. Like the names don't, don't match up with real people. And the, the, the bookkeeper's like, there's no way I'm giving you that information. Like Capone will kill me. I'm not doing it. And Connery gets the idea that he's going to, cause the, the guy, the, the guy who, Elliot Ness killed his body's still laying on the um on the porch and he gets the idea that he's gonna like pull the body up as if he's just like knocked out and then stick a stick a gun in his in his mouth and basically counts from like three two one and then he shoots like, the guy's already dead but he shoots him right through the mouth and then of course the the, the bookkeeper like loses his mind he's like I'll tell you I'll tell you anything I'll tell you anything <laughs> and and then that ends and the Canadian Mounties just like we don't approve of your methods and and elliot ness is like well you're not from chicago (laughs) and it's like it's over the top but it's like over the top in the best way and i i always love that scene yeah it was a really good scene um and then like if you're talking about just sheer directorial like the, the the climax of the movie is they have to basically find Capone's actual bookmaker because the mm-hmm. spoiler alert the guy who originally says he's going to translate the ledger and testify he gets killed so they have to basically find his actual bookmaker and he's tr- they're trying to get him on a train to Florida and the whole scene this is like De Palma really like flexing his directorial muscles like basically there was a shootout on the staircase in in the train station with a baby in a baby carriage slowly falling down the steps like with the wheels and it's all like in slow motion it's very stylized and that like like I don't I don't know if I like that scene as much as I like the sequence with the the guy getting shot through the mouth but like that is definitely that's definitely like the like the awards bait scene that they try to throw in there Oh, God, yeah. And, like, the way Kevin Costner, like, they cut to Kevin Costner, cut to the baby, cut to Kevin Costner, cut to the baby, cut to Kevin Costner, cut to the baby. And it's like, all right, we get it. He's the good guy, and he can't possibly let a baby <laughs> fall down the steps. So, But it was, like, you're right. Like, that was definitely 
a scene that was like heavily, heavily directed. Um, but it does work for what they were trying to do. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's definitely like it keeps you hooked. Like mm-hmm. it, you've you're totally invested in it. It's just I, I always I don't know. Even if I don't like love those kind of scenes, I always enjoy them to an extent because it's like man, the director had a blast doing yeah. this one. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> the way it ends is super cool too because it it kind of I think like during the course of kind of the middle part of the movie, I had for kind of forgotten that the reason that they picked Andy Garcia is that he was the best shooter in his um, class at the police academy. And so it it gives him, like, kind of a hero moment because he's got to shoot this bad guy in the head with, like, you know, two inches to spare between the bad guy and the the guy that they need to keep alive to get Capone. So it's kind of a, a nice little reminder of, like, this is why Andy Garcia is here in the first place, and he definitely gets time to shine. No, that that's a cool callback. I didn't mm-hmm. I didn't really think of that, but you're right. That that's a nice like world building type of you lay the groundwork so that it's not that it's not that oh this guy just miraculously made this incredible shot. Like right. no, you actually set the groundwork as to why he's, you know, why he's in the mix in the first place is because exactly. he's his crack shot. Yeah. Okay, so I mean I think we've kind of gone through a couple things, you know, both the good and the bad, but like the flaws of this movie. Like I have some little things that annoy me, but I want to hear your uh, your outlook because it definitely sounded like you were you were conflicted as to like whether you really liked it or really didn't like it because it is it is kind of a weird feel of a movie. Mm-hmm. I I mean, I definitely liked the movie. I enjoyed watching it. Um the I guess the the stuff that I didn't love was the heavy-handed bits. Like, I don't think it was necessary for, um, what's her name? Patricia Clarkson? Is that his wife? Yeah, yeah, um, I think so. Like, she is just so deliberately made into, like, almost a literal angel figure. That's fair. In That's this totally movie. fair. Like, the lighting on her face, and she's just, like, beautiful and golden and sweet and kind, and, like, it's just like, all right, like... I, I get, it. get it. I get it. She's a good lady and they have kids and everything, you know, it's just like, I didn't, I don't think they needed to hammer the audience over the head as much as they did with that kind of stuff. But otherwise I, I like the movie quite a bit. No, that that's totally fair. And yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're talking about the kind of the, the decisions made by the director and you know, those, that's the kind of thing where it's hard to say whether that's like a conscious decision mm-hmm. because you want to have the, like the comparison between the two, or if that was just like lazy writing, like it, it's just, it's, it's hard to know. Yeah. I almost wonder, like, I almost lean more towards it being lazy writing for this reason, because I feel like there's one of the, one of the really interesting things about rewatching this is this idea and which I'm going to get into in a minute, this idea that like Ness kind of gets tainted by all Mm -hmm. of this. Like he's no longer the goody two, goody two shoes he was at the start of the movie. And I feel like there was probably something to mine there. Like if you really wanted to take that to like, it's, it's logical conclusions, like something to mine there where like Ness is now getting darker. So now he can't relate with his wife as much. If his mm. wife is this like paragon of virtue. And I feel like if you're really going to hammer that theme home, then maybe there was something you could have done with that where like, you know, 
that relationship maybe gets a little bit more focus because if you're going to make her out to be perfect, then the fact that he's no longer perfect should have an impact on her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Totally. And if you don't have that, then it's just like, well, we didn't have any, we didn't know what to do with this lady. So she's just like this perfect woman. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she was like, you you could have made this entire movie without her character completely and it wouldn't have taken away from the movie at all. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, so kind of that goes into like one of the things that it's, it's hard to say if it like, if it bothers me, it does to a degree. And I think the reason why it bothers me is like, I joked about it in the outline, but there is like a serious point about this. So the end of the movie, what ends up happening is, um, Frank Nitty, who was actually a real person. He was like a famous, like hitman mobster type guy. Um, he is set up as like Capone's like, basically the gun of Capone. Like, everybody that gets killed who's important, Nitty kills. And Nitty kills Sean Connery's character in, like, the climax of the... of, of the, the, the the overall climax of the movie, mm-hmm. before be, before the, the baby carrot scene. So, it's the... Uh, like, Capone's getting arraigned or whatever, and they pull Nitty out of the courtroom, and basically, they find, like, a piece of paper... Was it? They find, like, a matchbook, I think? Yeah. And that's when... That's when... Um, when uh, um, uh, Elliot Ness figures out that Nitty killed Sean Connery's character. Yes. So they get on the rooftop, and basically he ends uh, – Kevin Costner, uh, Elliot Ness, catches Nitty on the rooftop and, like, has him basically, you know, like, he's, he's got him, he's going he's gonna to arrest him, whatever. And then Nitty starts taunting Elliot Ness about, like, you know, him sc- his screaming like a, like a stuck Irish pig or something, and then Elliot Ness pushes him off the building. And, and kills him. And it's interesting because, like, on one hand, it works because it really is showing that, like, okay, you know, he really did, you know, figure out what was necessary to take these guys down. At the same time, there's, like, no consequences. Like, yeah, he, he, just, not even mentioned. he just kills him. He just kills him. And, yeah. like, that's it. It's over. And I feel like that pulled me out of the movie. Yeah. Because, like, look, I'm, I'm cool with him killing Frank Nitti. Like, that, I think, works but there has to be something that happens as a result of it. Like, even if it's just, like, he lied about it and that's how he got out of it. Yeah. Like, there has to be some sort of explanation as to why a treasury officer can push someone off a building and have nothing happen as a result of it. Yeah, I think there's actually, like, almost like a throwaway line. Like, when they go back downstairs and they leave the courtroom... Um, like, I think someone asked about it, and he was like, oh, he's in the car. Because he's in he, the car, yeah. yeah. he fell off the building into the car, and, like, that was like, all right. <laughs> like, and, and that's, and it's, and as a kid, like, I love that. That was a yeah. great line. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> but, like, at, at age 30, I'm like, that's, so that, that whole scene was just a setup for that line? Yeah, it might have been. Maybe. Or, or maybe we're just meant to believe that, like, back at this time, cops could push bad guys off the roof, and it was... Everyone was okay with it. <laughs> it was totally fun. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, that that on the rewatch bothered me a little bit. Again, not because I didn't. I I, I actually like the scene. Like mm-hmm. I like the scene. I and I I always loved the little quip. I thought that was great. But like, you had there has to be something. You can't just like then immediately go back to Capone going to jail. Like, yeah. and then Elliot Ness is still this you know like paragon of virtue or whatever. Like I don't know. It was that that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way in terms of. Again, it goes back to kind of what I was saying about his wife. Like, I think you, you could have you could have mined that for something yeah. more. And instead, they sort of just went with the surface level. Well, this will be fun. Yeah, I agree. 100%. And extremely satisfying. 
Mm-hmm. Um, cool. So uh, I guess like final thoughts before we move over to the music of other stuff. I really enjoyed this movie and I'm glad that I finally watched it because this was one of those movies that I, I don't know why I never saw it before, but it was one of those movies that like you always hear about the untouchables. Like it's one of those movies that's like discussed. Um, yeah. So I, I'm glad that I finally saw it and it was an enjoyable watch for sure. Yeah, I, I think the, the big takeaway for me, um, having not seen this movie in probably like over a decade, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't remember the last time I watched this movie, is, and we talked about it earlier, is just how good Sean Connery is in this movie. Yeah. And I think it's it's worth pointing out that, like, I feel like we now look at him as someone, like as a general public, we look at him as someone who like, well, yeah, obviously Sean Connery is a really good actor. Like, and that's just assumed. But like, he very well could have just been remembered as James Bond. That's true. And and like, oh, he's just James Bond. That's all he is. And he he's just this, you know, this secret agent, spy, whatever, and not like a serious actor. And I feel like, you know, he did some other movies that that kind of got him some cred. Like he was in, um, I think he was in The Man Who Would Be King. And mm. that was like, I think he got he got some some good reviews for that. Um, but this was his like his first Academy Award. It might, it might be his only Academy Award. And this was just a movie that I think really kind of solidified him as like, he's not just James Bond. He's a legitimately really good actor. Yeah. And that's cool. Yeah, It is cool. And if this is his only Academy Award, I totally get it. This, I mean, that might just like off the top of my head might've been like the best, almost like most subtle Sean Connery performance that I can think of. It was really good. Yeah, that's fair. Cause he, he is, it's funny. Like we talk about De Niro, De Niro, we think of as subtle. Like he's, I think he's incredibly subtle in Godfather part two. Like that's mm-hmm. probably, I think is like maybe his most subtle performance. And this is definitely like, unless you're, unless you're having like, maybe like analyze this or whatever, like his most <laughs> like ridiculous performance and over the top. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Um, so now I, I'm actually going to do this cause we haven't done this the last couple of times, but we're going to take this time to take a break. And then we're going to get some ads in. And then we're going to talk about an album that Kelly recommended by a band called The Tragically Hip. Okay, we're back. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that product or service and you will get use out of it, (laughs) even in quarantine. Anyway, so my choice for this week was The Untouchables. I picked the movie. So Kelly was picking the album for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I got to say, I was I was expecting Pearl Jam. Mm-hmm. So I was, and, and I, I think at some point we probably will get to Pearl Jam because mm-hmm. I have not listened to any Pearl Jam albums aside from the big one. So at some point, I'm sure we'll get there. Um, but I was, I was, I was surprised in a good way when you tossed this, this band out there because I know, like, we all know Kelly and her love for Canada. And this is like one of the quintessential Canadian bands. Yeah, when I was trying to think of um, what we should listen to, I initially was going to have us listen to uh, Pearl Jam's brand new album, Gigaton, that actually just came out, um, only because I thought it would be interesting in that I had only listened to it one time through, um, and it would obviously be your first listen, and I thought it would make something interesting to talk about, but then I was like, Pearl Jam is like the most expected way (laughs) that I could go, because (laughs) like they're obviously my favorite band, everybody knows that. so then I thought, like, okay, let's go in a different direction to something that I I was fairly confident that you hadn't listened to a ton of the Tragically Hip. So I thought this would be a fun way to go. So I, I went with uh, their album Fully Completely from 1992. Um, 
And interestingly enough, this is not my favorite Tragically Hip album. Um, okay. And it's not their first album, as I put here in the outline. But I thought it was an interesting choice because it was the album that kind of rocketed them to fame, like big time fame in Canada. And also, it was the album that was supposed to do the same thing in the U.S., which it obviously did not. So I think that kind of makes it something interesting to listen to and talk about. Yeah, yeah. And the the Tragically Hip, like, they're definitely a band that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, just and, and it's partially just because I work in hockey. Like, every Canadian hockey writer loves the Tragically Hip. Yes. And obviously, um, what was what's the lead singer's name again? Gord, what was his name? Gord Downey. Gord Downey. Obviously, he just recently passed away. So that was, they got a ton of, um, you know, kind of people reminiscing on the concerts they saw and, you know, the way their albums touched them. So you got a lot of that over the last couple of years, which is good. I mean, it's, it's always, I love music, so I find it extremely cool. Even when I'm not into an artist or band, I find it extremely cool when it's very clear that an artist or band hit people in a really personal and impactful way and you got the you got the impression that like this band for a lot of canadians of a certain age really hit them hard and it's actually this is something that um i don't know if you remember this but before gord downey died um they went on kind of one last tour um which i actually was lucky enough to go to the show that they did in london ontario but they also did a live broadcasted show on the CBC, and I remember thinking at the time that it was broadcast, um, watching it at home, and trying to think if there was, like, any musical artist, like, that was so generally beloved by Americans that you would put their concert on, like, ABC or NBC in primetime and expect that everyone would watch it, and I, I couldn't think of anything. I don't know that there is one. Um, so that's something yeah, that's, that I, that's a fascinating question. Yeah. And it's like something that always kind of interested me about the hip, just that not only were they a very popular band in Canada, like, I mean, there's tons of very popular bands in the U S like iconic bands, like, I don't know, like Aerosmith, Pearl Jam, like American bands that are super iconic, that were hugely successful over a number of decades, but it's not as universal as this band is which is always something that I found very interesting. And I don't think it's something that I guess you can understand from an outside perspective, because I, I definitely don't. Um, but it's, it's kind of, it's almost, it's kind of cool, really. Yeah, there's, there's definitely an element. And like, you pick this up covering hockey, mm-hmm. without a doubt, um, for, for better or worse. And there's, there's good aspects of this and there's bad aspects of this, but there like Canada is definitely it's like it's like a very parochial country mm-hmm. in the sense that like they have their things and they freaking love their things yep. and like you can and you can like their things but you're never going to love their things as much as they will love their things and i yeah. feel like you definitely get that feel with the tragically hip that is an absolutely apt thing to say it's it is for some reason I find it charming with these people <laughs> that they're like this. I mean, it gets a little annoying in a hockey sense when, like, Leafs fans are like, we're better hockey fans than you because we're from Toronto. But, like, even so living here for a little while now, there's even, like, little things. Like, 
all of the dairy is Canadian dairy, and it's like very heavily advertised that this is Canadian butter and Canadian milk, and it's like, <laughs> who cares? But like, there's like some weird sense of pride in the fact that all of the dairy that people are eating comes <laughs> from Canada. It's not coming from anywhere else. So I don't know. It's kind of cute. Um, but yeah, this this band is definitely kind of of that sort of like Canada is like its own like niche community of like outsider culture nerds that have their own little things that other people don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it is, it's endearing. Mm -hmm. As I said, it has its good parts and its bad parts. And I mean, I mostly like the Canadians that I've met in real life. So it's usually endearing. And then like, it's, and when it's annoying, it's usually annoying in the way where you can just like cut them up and make fun. And then like, you know, it just becomes like a joke or whatever. So it's, it's cool. But like, you definitely, I always got that vibe with the tragically hip that like, on one hand, they, Canadians want it the tragically hip to get big elsewhere but on the other hand they kind of like the idea that right. like well you'll just never you'll just never get them like we will yep. and i definitely think part of that because this is the first um this is the first tragically hip album i listened to in full so i i was familiar with 50 mission cap which is on this album and 50 mission cap is uh it's about a former maple leaf who um who scored scored a goal that won a stanley cup for the leafs and then he gets into a plane crash and basically disappears and they don't find his body until the next time the leafs win the cup which is like the story of the song so that was one of those like oh it's a hockey song i'll mm-hmm. listen to it and i liked it um but I, I listened to that like 10 years ago but i hadn't really listened to anything else by them and you definitely like um as we talked about i'm definitely the kind of person who likes to read along with the lyrics when i'm listening to albums and this album as you mentioned on the outline like it's very canadian Mm -hmm. like they there's a lot of stories in this album that are references to canadian history or just canadian events or canadian places like it they are they are wearing that that maple leaf on their sleeve this entire album oh yeah they they definitely do and they they kind of do like throughout their whole discography to some extent but this one i think is like the most heavy-handed one um and just to give like a little bit of background on this album in particular and why i thought it was interesting to choose it is that it was their third album um and the first two albums they kind of recorded in that way where you're just you know in a studio playing live and they're recording it um which is one way people record music but this album they were apparently kind of like meh on the guy that had produced those two albums and they wanted to do something different. So their record label kind of brought in this guy that was like, had made bands big in the US and that was definitely more of a producer that had them record individual tracks um, and then mush them all together in a very produced way, um, which was not the way that they were used to working. And this was meant to, as I said earlier, this was meant to be the album that made them famous worldwide. And the producer had created a number of American radio hits that they kind of just assumed he would also kind of work that magic on this album and it would work. But even though it was like super popular in Canada, um, MCA, their record label, only decided to promote it for like two weeks in the U.S. and it didn't go anywhere. Like they they got nothing out of it. Um, There was a time around this time that there was some little things like uh, they were on SNL once um, around this time. I know that they, they would play small venue tours in the U S like I can remember um, like back when I was in high school, 
I knew that they came to like the Trocadero a couple of times. So oh, that's they, cool. Like really small venues they would play here, whereas in Canada they're playing at like Air Canada Center or Scotiabank Center or whatever it is now. Like they're playing right. huge arena tours. Um, so for some reason, even though this album was essentially like genetically engineered to make them popular in the U.S., nothing about it caught on. Um, and it's kind of like interesting to think about why, because despite the subject matter being very Canadian, I think the sound of the album is like extremely what was happening in the U.S. in 1992 in like popular rock music. Oh, I 100% agree. Like there's listening to this album musically, there's no reason why like sometimes you just don't know. Like yeah. you don't know what song is going to click with an audience, but at least in terms of the way it's made, the way it sounds and the styles and the influences, there's no real reason why you listen to this and say Americans are inherently going to dislike this album right. or just it's not going to click with them. Like it clearly didn't for a lot of people or maybe it didn't get the opportunity or maybe it just didn't impress the right record label people or, you know, payola people. I don't know how it worked yeah. back, back in the early 90s. But like there's no there, there's nothing that I heard on this album that made me think like this is why it's not popular mm -hmm. like i'm a lyrics person so you know to me to me it's interesting to hear like to, to read read and hear along lyrics about canada but i don't think the vast majority of the pop music listening world is are lyrics people so mm -hmm. i highly doubt this was a case of like them hearing the songs and saying well i'd like this but i don't care about canada lyrics like they just don't care it's just it, it wouldn't even have registered to people so it was something else and I can't quite put my finger on it, but kind of using that as a jumping off point, they clearly clicked for you. Mm -hmm. And I want to know why they clicked for you when they maybe didn't click for the vast majority of the U.S. So it's there's probably a number of reasons why I started to like this band so much. And a lot of it is kind of tied to hockey, which makes perfect sense, because like you said, like this is Canada's band and hockey is Canada's sport. But um 150 years ago back um like this would have been the very early 2000s um to give you a general idea of how big of a nerd i was at this time um <laughs> i had some friends that i made on live journal <laughs> that were um also big hockey fans which is kind of how we got to be online buddies and um one of them was this girl named jen who lived in maryland and eventually we met each other in real life and we became like really fast, really good friends. Um, and it was kind of, you know, based around this idea that we were kind of like quiet, dorky girls who really loved this niche sport that didn't get a lot of attention from a lot of people. And so this was kind of like our thing. Um, and at one point we were taking a road trip. I forget where to. But she was driving, and she had, like, as we did back in the early 2000s, a blank CD with a Sharpie written on it of, like, mixed yes. songs that she had put together. Yes, I love it. And she was like, have you ever heard this band? And I was like, no, I've never heard of them. And she was like, oh, they're Canadian. They're really good. I was like, cool. She pops it on, and I listened to it, and I immediately liked it. Um, but also there was kind of this, similar to hockey, kind of like this is our little secret thing that we are super cool and we know about and other people don't know about it um but over the years i 
just started listening to their music quite a lot. Um, and it just kind of always stuck with me. I just like it. Um, lyrically, I like it quite a lot. I like the sound of it quite a lot. Um, and it just started to like take on meaning in the way that Pearl Jam did for me in the sense that a lot of great memories that I have from my life were kind of had a background soundtrack of this band, which I think is how a lot of people get to their favorite bands. But that's how it happened. It was just like a weird, hey, have you ever heard this type of thing? And then <laughs> I did. And, and then I liked them. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like, I almost feel weird about it just because I am like this yay Canada person. Like, I almost feel like it's like a cartoony, like, of course she likes this band because she's ridiculous. But I I kind of, I, I came to like them actually before I ever visited Canada. So it was like <laughs> before. Yeah. No, I mean, I think there's absolutely, and that's a super cool story. And I think... Mm -hmm. One thing that I that I absolutely love about music um, is that I think everyone everyone who really cares about music mm -hmm. has a story like that about yeah. their favorite artist or their favorite band, and it, it's everybody's story is different. You know, it might be you know might be you know a, a drive like you're saying, like a friend recommended it, you know, a significant other, something like that. You know, your parents, like everyone has that story, and they you know. They're always unbelievably meaningful, you know, to the person who, uh, you know, who's who's made that connection with that artist or band, and I, mm -hmm. I love hearing them. Um, that's super cool, and I don't think, like, I, I don't think it matters the idea of, you know, the well, you know, Kelly's the Canada person, <laughs> so she likes the tragically hip. Like, who cares? Yeah, I mean, I don't. You know, Canada, Canada's struck a chord with you as a country, and this band struck a chord with you as a country or as as a band, and that's mm -hmm. just kind of the way it is, and it's just you know every little bit of it like makes up the person you are. And I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, one question I did have for you mm -hmm. that I was, um, because I, I, to, to be clear, cause we've spent a lot of time talking and I haven't even said what I thought. I, I like this album. I, <laughs> okay, I enjoyed good. it. Um, but one thing that I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned earlier that this album was very clearly recorded in a way that they thought was going to break them in the U S mm -hmm. And my question for you is, as someone who's listened to their entire discography, is there something that gets lost in that? Like, is it, is the album weaker in terms of the way it sounds or maybe concessions that were made? Or is it, is it, does that not have an impact? Because I know like there's some people who would say like, you know, not that I'm saying that this is like a sellout record by any means, but there's no. an element, you know, like when when a band who's on an, that's on an indie label goes to a major label, there's mm -hmm. uh, there's that feeling of like, oh well, the you know the production's cleaner. It's them trying; they they lost something by the production being cleaner. It's not as raw as it used to be. So I'm just curious, like, do you think that anything was lost in them kind of trying to grab for the brass ring on this one? I don't think so. Um. I would say, like, maybe there's just kind of, like, I don't know how to describe it. From the first two albums to this one, just maybe, like, more finesse and, like, smoothness that probably comes from a producer that knows what they're doing in that kind of way. Um, but the core sound of the band doesn't change much, I would say, over the course of their entire career, really. Like, there's a, a okay. kind of, like, a, a main thread of 
musical styling that follows them that doesn't really it's not lost on this album at all so i think you got a good representation of who they actually are okay that's cool yeah because yeah. I, I i there have definitely been like one band i i can think of um who definitely did this to a degree and i they're not super popular but um i think there are some there are some parallels there's a a pop punk or punkish band called the living end and mm-hmm. they were really big in not like huge but like big in australia because they're from australia and that was their thing and they made an album around the time i was in a like punk rock and the warp tour scene called modern artillery and that was like it was with a a u.s producer i believe it was mark trombino who i knew because he produced jimmy world um and it was very clearly them like kind of smoothing things out a little bit to try to get big in the u.s Mm -hmm. and it didn't really work like they had a couple a couple hits like um who's gonna save us i think was the big the big single that got some radio play but like they didn't blow up they didn't Mm -hmm. get like anywhere near you know green day levels or blink 182 levels or anything and, um, you know, I, I liked the album. I enjoyed it. And then the album after that, they definitely went back to a little bit more, like, raw feel. Mm-hmm. It was just like, well, we gave it a shot. And it didn't work. <laughs> so now we're just going to go back to writing, like, our normal stuff. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my – the thing that popped up in my head when you were talking about that is I wonder if there's a feeling among the fan base, the diehard fans, that, you know, they lost something by trying to go for the U.S. market. Yeah, I don't think so. And, like, just to – so when I listen to the Tragically Hip, I actually, um, like, I have their Greatest Hits album downloaded on my phone. And that's kind of, like, what I use to listen to the hip if I'm going to listen to them. Um, it's, like, a two-disc two um, Greatest Hits album, so there's a lot of songs on it. But, like, you couldn't pick out these songs as different from other songs on their Greatest Hits album because they sound different. Like, they all really go together. Okay. All right. Cool. Mm-hmm. Cool. So now I, I guess we can go into the album itself. Yeah. Um, so I guess from uh, from your perspective, you said this isn't your favorite album of theirs, but you do like it a lot. Mm-hmm. So what what do you like about it? Why why your, does it hook you so much? So um, the title track, Fully Completely, is one of my favorite Tragically Hip songs. Not my absolute favorite, but one of my favorites. Um, and I find that this album... Oh, Lord, a spider on the floor. Scare the crap out of me. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I find that I'm obviously as someone who lists Pearl Jam as their favorite band. um, I'm I'm a big fan of like the grunge sound. Spider's coming for me. Um, Because I'm trying to kill kill the spider. I'm trying to kill it. Okay, it's dead. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, listeners to this professional podcast. Um, Awesome. (laughs) So as someone... um, who is obviously into that kind of grunge center of music. Um, This album for me, and I'm not sure, I don't know if it's because of when it came out or because it was produced by someone who was trying to get them to sound more American. This, this album more than other ones for them has a kind of a grungy, a grungier sound, I think. Um, And so that just kind of immediately speaks to me. This is also this album contains most of the songs that I heard first. Um, okay. Fully Completely was one of the first ones I heard. Wheat Kings, um, 50 Mission Cap. Um, so these were like kind of the first ones that I heard. So of course, obviously they, they stuck with me, but um, I also just think that this song, this album, it only has for me like a few speed bumps. Like I kind of feel like it, you can roll through it really easily and it sounds good the whole way through 
So that's kind of what I went with it. No, that's cool. Um, I think on my my side, because as I said, the only song of theirs I really knew was 50 Mission Cap. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that jumped out to me early, and it pretty much went through most of the album, was it just seemed like like stylistically it bounced back and forth between like, this sound to me, I'd be like, okay, this song sounds a lot like R.E.M. Mm-hmm. And then it'd be like, okay, this song sounds a lot like Seattle grunge and like mm-hmm. Pearl Jam, like, you know, with the, the real, the heavy feedback. And like, I, I'm not a huge Pearl Jam person. I do like R.E.M. a lot. And there are some times in this, in this album where he sounds a lot like Michael Stipe, like a lot like him um, with like the, 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 the speak singing and just kind of the bar the, the, like the light baritone. Like there are some times where you're like, shit, this is very R.E.M. ish. Yeah, I was I was actually kind of excited when I saw that you put that on the outline because that is the band that they are most generally, I think, compared to as far as like American bands go, like they're the Canadian R.E.M., which like I kind of get. Um, I never loved R.E.M. as much as I did this band or the grungier bands, which is, you know, just a choice. Um, yeah. But I like 100 percent can see how you could listen to this and immediately think R.E.M., especially because, like you said, Gord Downey and Michael Stipe have very similar vocal styles. Very similar. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, REM in the 90s, they kind of, like, so my favorite REM album by far is Automatic for the People. Mm -hmm. And that's not even the album that, like, this most sounds like. Like, This sounds like they're, like, 80s college Rocky stuff, just Mm -hmm. with much better production. Mm -hmm. Um, Because then they got it, like, I mean, I like the more, like, I guess ornate type stuff, you know, the, when they were using the production tricks and everything was super clean, like that's the stuff of theirs I really like. But this was definitely more because even though this is very clearly like a big budget production album, mm-hmm. it, it's it's rough enough around the edges, especially in terms of how the guitars sound, that like it could pass for for college rock mm-hmm. of that era without a doubt. Yeah, and that I never thought of that, but that is interesting. That's an interesting observation, which is kind of weird because like we've been saying this was meant to be their most to date like smoothly produced and polished album so it's interesting that you listen to it and hear like it's a little bit not so much that yeah it's just there's just some feedback like and it's definitely still you know it's not an indie album by any means Mm -hmm. but it's just it's not and maybe it's partially because like it's certainly not super clean compared to how albums are recorded today. Yeah. But like, I listened to like automatic for the people and that sounds like a today album. Like mm-hmm. granted it's been remastered and whatnot, but like this album, this album wouldn't sound, sound totally out of place for me, like in like the late eighties and like the, that whole college mm-hmm. rock type scene uh, with like the gleaming guitars and everything. And that was cool. That was, that was really neat. I, I, I like that. Cause I don't, that's not a style that I know too much of, but mm-hmm. I've always liked what I've heard from it. So that was cool okay. to to hear. Um, I also really, really like the like the storytelling nature of the lyrics, and I think mm-hmm. that seems like that's one of their things. Like that's just yeah. what they do. They tell they tell stories with their songs. I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, and it's interesting that um, like so I'm I'm not a lyrics person in the sense that like even though. Like most people, I typically know all of the words to songs that I like. I don't often take the time to like actually think that hard about what they're saying. Um, so like when I started looking into like kind of the history behind this album to get ready for this, 
I didn't even realize that some of the songs that were tied to Canadian history were tied to Canadian history. Like I kind of thought some of them were just, you know, storytelling songs that were mm-hmm. just just came out of Gord Downey's head. I didn't realize that like um apparently uh looking for a place to happen is based on like some famous Canadian person that got kidnapped for some reason. Like I had no idea. I've been singing along with this song for wow. like 20 years and I had no idea that that was like a, a thing. So it's, it's interesting. I, I kind of liked that that was something that you picked up on um, because it's obviously, like you said, an important part of what the band does. Yeah. Yeah. That was something. I mean, I've, I've said this pretty much every show we've done. Mm-hmm. I am definitely a lyrics person. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. Um, and I think one thing that I liked about it in terms of what it does for the album, because we, we talked about the last time you were on about like me kind of liking to like try to pick apart themes, mm-hmm. like lyrical themes of albums and like what's okay, what's this album trying to say? What's the statement? And I think what's cool about this record is it's it's definitely like very much like you know we're, we're proud to be canadians like we have this great history you know and it's like this beautiful country but there's also a lot of times where he's singing about not great stuff that's happened in canada mm-hmm. and i think it's cool like there's like a real balance between like they clearly love their country and canada loved them back but like it's not all great mm-hmm. and like there are you know prime ministers that get killed and there are people that get kidnapped and there are um you know there are people who get wrongfully imprisoned and like there's 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 this element of like it's great but it's not perfect and i think like the song the song that that hit me hard from that perspective which i i gather is one of their famous songs is wheat kings and yeah that's a song that's a song that it's about basically a um a guy who he's like not from I was doing some reading on it like he was visiting another province I think and then basically he gets not framed but he gets wrongfully accused of this rape and murder and then he gets sent to jail for the rest of his life and then finally after like 20 something years he gets exonerated and he gets let out and the the song's about that but what I love about the song and I'll go into a little bit depth of why I think this is really important especially with where it's placed in the album is it kind of goes back and forth between, from the lyric standpoint, it goes back and forth between this, like, recounting the story of this guy getting wrongfully accused and, like, how horrible of a thing it was that he spent 20-something years in jail. And then the chorus is just talking about, like, how beautiful the area is. Like, it's it's just, like, the scenery is beautiful and whatnot. And I love that, like, that juxtaposition of, like, the beauty of Canada versus the ugliness of Canada. And that really hit me hard because I think that's just like hammering home really the entire theme of the record in a really poignant and meaningful way. Because I mean, shit, if you're going to write a song about a guy being wrongfully imprisoned for decades, like that's like the heavy hitter song of the album and kind of using that as a jumping off point. Like the way I, I tend to, when I, when I, when I look at albums as like a cohesive whole, most albums and not all like there's some that i think there's exceptions but most albums like that that are structured in that way there's usually a song about like three quarters of the way through that i view as like the climactic emotional peak of the album and that's the song where like that's where you really figure out what this artist is trying to get at 
in an album that that's like everything in the first three quarters of the album is like building you up so when that song hits you get what this artist is trying to get across and like then obviously like the closure is really important too because that's kind of like putting the capstone on everything the artist is trying to get across but like that climactic peak song to me is like that's what makes an album like an album can be good and it can have good songs and you can like it but if you want an album to be great it has to nail that song because that's like the freaking song that makes an album amazing from a thematic standpoint. And to me, Wheat Kings is that song. And it's perfect because of how it sums up everything that they were going for the entire rest of the album in like a really devastatingly emotional way. This is why I love doing this show because I like none of this <laughs> ever occurred to me because I listen in such a passive way. And it's like really interesting to think about because as you're saying that, I'm thinking of the song and the lyrics, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's all absolutely true. It's just not, it's never a thing that occurred to me. Um, so I'm actually looking forward now to listening to this album again, now that I've talked to you about it and see if <laughs> it hits me different. But yeah, like, it's, and it's just one of those weird things for me, like, when I go into an album, and when I, um, you know, when I've, Usually I can pick up within like three or four songs whether it's going to be one of those albums. Mm -hmm. like one of those albums where I can I, I can tell that like there's been real care put into the lyrics, there's been real care put into the arrangements, and there's they're 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 trying to go for something. Like I'm like zeroed in on trying to figure out okay when's the, when's the big song coming? Mm -hmm. When when is that like when is that epic track going to show up? And this one, like by the third or fourth song, I'm like, yeah, I think this is one of those albums. Like mm. they're really putting care into it. And then when We Kings came, like 50 Mission Cap, I was like, maybe it's 50 Mission Cap. Maybe that's the one because like that's another really, really interesting story. But like We Kings to me is like, that's the devastating one. Like that's the yeah. gut punch of a song and it just really fits. And I think, I think in a way, like the fact that it comes right after 50 Mission Cap is even better because you almost get like double gut punches and adding in fully completely that's another gut punch yeah. so like you have all like like maybe like the three biggest gut punch songs right in a row right in that section of the album and like i don't think that was just a coincidence i yeah. think it's because they know that like those are the heavy hitters and we want them to be like at that pivotal part of the album where you're really really hammering home what we want you to come across like what what we were what we what what we want you to come away from this album thinking about yeah that's really cool charlie Thanks, Kelly. You should uh, be a writer. <laughs> Pretty good with words. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, and as I said before on these shows, like this is just the way I listen to music. Yeah. It's not like the right or wrong way, but like this is, it's it's these types of things is why like I love albums so much. Mm -hmm. It's like why I get into them as much as I do because I can really try to, you know, I can try to listen to an album like I'm reading a book. And yeah. that's th these are the types of things that really like hit me when I'm when I'm doing that. Um, but kind of moving to because we talked about this a little bit, um, favorite song. So you said your favorite song is fully completely, which yeah. I totally get. Like I, I don't think that's my favorite song on the record. Mm -hmm. I think my favorite song is probably We Kings. Mm -hmm. But I totally get fully completely being your favorite song because number one, it's really good. Yeah. Number two, it's probably the most personal song on the album. Mm. Like, I, I feel like a lot of the other songs are storytelling, whereas this is very clearly about him yeah. and his, you know, his personal life. Which is also kind of interesting because um, 
one of the things that I read when I was looking up stuff about this album um, is that this was the album where Gord Downey kind of declared, like, I'm not singing songs written by anyone else anymore. Like, I'm only going to sing songs that I've written. Um, not all the music, but, like, lyrically, he was only going to sing his own words. Um, which I didn't know before I started looking into this, but it is interesting because that is a very personal song. And I think for me, the thing that I love so much about it is it's one of those songs that, like, it builds and 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 it's driving and driving and driving and driving and driving and then you get to the climax and it's like, ah, yes! Like, you really, like, like you're, like, getting all, like, worked up and, like, jazzed up for it and then you get to the top of the hill and it's like, fuck, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I love songs that build. Like, I love those those songs that, you know, they there's, like, a rising action and then it just pays the fuck off. I love that. And what I did like about this song, too, is that, like, I kind of said earlier that I'm going through the album, you'd be like, okay, this is, like, an R.E.M.-ish song. This is, like, a Pearl Jam-ish song. This is, like, well, not quite Pearl Jam, but I can hear it. Fully Completely doesn't sound like anybody. Like, that just sounds like a unique song that is, I guess, just quintessentially tragically hip. And I think that's that's a reason why I can totally get why a fan would love it because that wasn't a song where I'm like, this is him trying to be Michael Stipe. It's like, no, this is, this is Gord Downey trying to be Gord Downey. And that's, mm-hmm. there's something really, I think, pure about that. Yeah, that, that definitely is a tragically hip song. Like, that is what they sound like. So it's, it's kind of cool that you picked up on that too. Yeah, that was that was my top three. Wheat Kings, I think, is my favorite. I really liked that the Hundredth Meridian. I think that's that's a very R.E.M. Yeah, song, is. and I think that's why I think that's why I liked it because it was like that was the first song that really hit me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, this this is like this is like R.E.M. I like this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I dug that one a lot. But those those are probably my my favorite three. I like Fifty Mission Cap, but I feel like I was already familiar with mm-hmm. it, so it was just like, oh, this is on. I know this song. Yeah. Let's get to the stuff I don't. Like. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And 50 Mission Cap is great, but it's not even, in my opinion, their best hockey song, which is Fireworks. Really? Have you heard Fireworks? I have not. Yeah, you should listen to that song. It's fun. It's like a little bit more, it's a, a lot more lighthearted and I don't want to say poppy, but like um, it's kind of a more lighthearted song that's about hockey. So you, okay. you might like it if you look it up. Yeah, I'll, I'll check it out. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, you said fully completely was your favorite. Um, what, and then you said, what uh, you said looking for a place to happen. You like a lot. Too? Yeah. Looking for a place to happen. I like quite a lot. Um, which is also kind of, it, it doesn't build as much as fully completely, but it's definitely like a driving song that you kind of like, it's pushing you along the whole way. Um, which I, I kind of like. And I also, I mean, I, I do like 50 mission cap quite a lot, but it, that also might be because it's one of the first songs that I heard. Because, like I said, we were a couple of hockey nerds listening to the Canadian band. So, obviously, we <laughs> listened to all the hockey songs quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, which which ones didn't you like? Um, the only one that, that I quickly skipped... Well, I didn't... I mean, I listened to it all the way through, but, like, I just kind of tuned out was We'll Go To. Yeah. That was one that just kind of, like, just kind of breezed by, and it wasn't... It just didn't have anything to hook me. It just kind of was a little bit drab musically, and there was nothing in the lyrics that, like, oh, this is a story. It was just kind of there. Um, that was really the only one. Everything else I I at least liked to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, that was probably the only one that I kind of just breezed by and was like, okay, that was forgettable to me. Yeah, that's. I was actually also excited to see that, too, because that's the one where I'm just like, yeah, It's like a, it's just a completely forgettable song. There's nothing remarkable about it, so you just kind of – 
if I'm skipping a song on this album, that's the one I'm skipping every time. Yeah, I feel like the rest of them pretty much had, they all had something. Like, I think yeah. in the beginning, I didn't particularly like the wherewithal, and then it kind of got going. I'm like, okay, I dig this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, you mentioned, like, Pigeon Camera didn't super hook me, but then I was reading the outline, and you were talking about, like, that that song really has, like, the Seattle sound. Yeah. And then I started listening to that. I'm like, yeah, you're right. This song totally has the Seattle grunge sound in the verses. And it's interesting because um, that's not a song that I listen to a lot. So listening back to this album start to finish a couple of times um i started to hear like just like those little like guitar riffs and chord changes that just are so distinctly seattle grunge um that i was like oh wow and that i it was it's one of those things that i started to think about like obviously 1992 like there's not really a well-established internet to speak of like no one's really there's no Twitter to talk about like, Hey, did you hear Pearl Jam? They're great. Like, so it it always (laughs) makes, I always wonder about this kind of thing because it it happens with like a lot of genres and a lot of bands where at the same time, like a very specific sound develops in different places. And I wonder like, you know, I'm sure like the tragically hip knew what was happening in Seattle because they're professional musicians. And, you know, obviously they know these things, but it's just interesting to me. Like, I wonder how that works like if there's a deliberate we're gonna do this sound because that's what people are doing now or if it's like one of those passive things where like you hear a song and then six months later you're writing a song and like you put this thing in there that you heard before and you're not even thinking about it um but yeah I found it interesting because I I never really think of this album as being grungy like not really grungy like there's no you're not gonna mistake this album for being from a band that was playing in Seattle in 1992. But that song in particular really has like such distinctively grunge sounds to it that it was just like, it really stuck out for me in an interesting way. Yeah. It's, it, it's an interesting concept. And I mean, I'm sure MTV played a big role because you yeah, know, all those true. bands were, were on MTV. Everybody watched MTV. It was such a major part of, you know, U.S. culture, obviously, but I imagine MTV was in Canada, too. I, I can't imagine that they didn't pick that up, considering how... much music. Canadian MTV. Much music? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Okay. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so I'm sure that's part of it. Yeah. And plus, like, you know, you're, you're a musician. You know, I don't know if, if these guys went to college, but, like, you know, tapes get passed around, cassette tapes, and, you know, you share music, and I'm sure producers definitely, mm-hmm. like, bring their own, because that's the thing, interesting thing with producers, like, I feel like a lot of times we talk about the idea of a producer and we think of it being as a mixer, but you know, the best producers kind of become like extra members of a band. Mm-hmm. Like they are, they are very much active in the songwriting process for the most part. Like there's, there's some exceptions. Like um, there's one guy who I'm blanking on the name. who was popular. The guy who produced, uh, the guy who produced uh, um, Nirvana's, not not never mind, but the one after. Okay. He was he's he's very much like a hands. I'm blanking on the name, but he uh, he's Rick very Rubin? much like a hands off director. No, no. no. Um, I can't remember. Steve Steve something. Okay. Um, I, they, he also he also produced a Jawbreaker album. That's why. Okay. But like he's a very he's a very um a very like hands off producer. But I think a lot of producers you know are fairly hands on. Mm-hmm. You know they make suggestions. They might suggest like, hey, you know why don't you try this tuning or this instrument or whatever, and then they try it and maybe they like it, maybe they don't. Um, so that's, I'm sure a way that like, it kind of got, you know, you know, 
music yeah. went from different regions, but it's interesting that the grunge sound. I'm I'm nowhere near as much of an expert. I'm certainly nowhere near as much of an expert as you are. But like I always found it interesting that it it kind of everybody got sort of lumped into one sound when in reality the bands sounded very very different very different the big ones oh yeah like i'm sure there were i'm sure there were a ton of like bands that didn't go anywhere that were just carbon copies of the big guys Mm -hmm. but like the big bands like never mind sounds nothing like pearl jam oh yeah nothing like nirvana sounds nothing like pearl jam at all soundgarden sounds nothing like pearl jam or nirvana at all Exactly. Like Alice in Chains, like all those mm-hmm. bands, like they have very distinctive styles. And it always was interesting to me that they all sort of got lumped in to this overarching sound. When in reality, I don't know if there was like there were definitely similarities, mm-hmm. but they were very, very different bands. All of them. Oh, for sure. I think it was mostly that they were all from this one particular place. Um, but I, I do think that there is like a enough similarity that you could put them in a group together but the idea that they sound the same i think is definitely not right at all um but but i think that when you listen to those bands like you can definitely hear that they're from a specific place and of a specific time and something about them ties them all together like i'm sure if i listened to a bunch of it to kind of try and pick out what it was i probably could um Yeah, yeah but yeah, they definitely don't sound the same at all. Yeah, I just, I, I always found that interesting yeah. because, like, obviously Nirvana, it's funny, like, when I think of grunge, I know, like, Nirvana's the band that gets mentioned all the time. I think of Pearl Jam first. Like, that to me, because to me, Nirvana was basically just a punk They are band. very punky, yeah. And, like, they're a very, very punky band. Whereas, like, when I think of, like, the guitar sounds mm-hmm. and kind of, like, the extended songs, like, that's what I think of when I think of, like, the Seattle grunge sound. And that's way more Pearl Jam than me than Nirvana. Yeah, which makes sense because the um, two of the founding members of Pearl Jam, um, Stone Gossert and Jeff Ament, were, like, behind a bunch of smaller bands that came before Pearl Jam mm. that were kind of, like, the basis for this whole like Seattle sound thing that got created in the early nineties. So it, it does make sense that if you're thinking of a grunge sound, Pearl Jam is probably the most representative. Um, but like, I, I guess kind of like if you took grunge and you added punk to it, you have Nirvana. And if you took grunge yeah. and you added metal to it, you have Soundgarden. Like there's def- there's like a little underlying That's tie fair. that just brings them all together, but they sound so different that it is kind of annoying when they lump them together because they're not at all the same. Like when people are like Pearl Jam sucks, Nirvana was better. It's like, they were totally different. Like they could both be yeah. equally good. They were completely different bands. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. No, I think, uh, I think it's, it's a cool conversation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at some point, at some point we'll definitely have to do one of those Seattle bands, whether it's uh, whether it's Pearl Jam or somebody else, because again, it's not a genre like, or a subgenre that yeah. I'm super familiar with. Um, just because I really didn't grow up with it, but uh, but I, you know it really well, so definitely want to do that at some point. But I'm I'm really glad we did this me one. Me too. I'm I'm happy I listened to it. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Makes me happy. Cool. Um, so I guess uh, if uh, if in two weeks we are still in quarantine <laughs> with no hockey, which most likely we will be, uh, we'll have you back on yeah. and we'll talk about more other stuff. Um, but yeah, I. Uh, it was great having you, Kelly. Always good. This one went a little long, but I think I think we I think we talked about a lot. Me too. Sorry about the uh, spider murder that had to happen there 
in the middle. Hey, that was that was an epic part of it. I think that was an essential part of this show. That thing was coming for me. I usually don't kill spiders because they eat the other things, but this one had a vengeance, and he had to go. <laughs> I mean, we have a live spider killing on yeah. our show. Like, listen to Broad Street Hockey Radio. That's true. Come on. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, uh, thanks for listening, and uh, I will be back on hopefully next week with uh, with Bill Matz with another movie and album. Bye, guys.